You're listening to episode nine of the Journey to Launch podcast. End financial stress now and learn how to pay off debt and save money on any income. T minus 10 seconds. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 guys. Thanks again for joining the Journey to Launch podcast. I am so excited to bring you episode nine of the podcast. And before we jump into all the great goodness that myself and my guest, Emily Guy Birkin, will go into, I wanted to do some housekeeping things with you guys first. So first things first, I would love, love, love your support in a nomination for Journey to Launch as the best new personal finance podcast in the eighth annual Plutus Awards. So the Plutus Award awards the best in personal finance. And I saw they had a category for best new personal finance podcast. And I said, well, I have a recently launched podcast. I think I'm doing a good job so far (laughs) from what you guys are telling me mostly. And just, you know, I think I think it's going really well. And so I put my name in the ring to be nominated and I need more nominations. I just can't nominate myself. So I would really, really appreciate it if you guys are loving this podcast, if you are enjoying it, if you can go over and nominate me, Journey to Launch, as the best new personal finance podcast. You can do that by going to journeytolaunch.com slash nominate. It will redirect you to the Plutus Awards website. And there you'll see where you can enter Journey to Launch, my URL, journeytolaunch.com to nominate me. I would really, really, really appreciate it. And yeah, we'll see. So nominations are really up until this Friday. So if you are listening to this in real time, meaning this podcast will be released on September 6th. So if you're listening to this in real time or in this week that you're listening, you have until September 8th to nominate me. So if you can do that, that'd be awesome. Go to journeytolaunch.com slash nominate and then nominate Journey to Launch as the best new personal finance podcast. Next thing, we are going to talk about a lot of great things here. So if you want the show notes for this episode, you can find it at journeytolaunch.com slash episode nine. And you'll find anything we talked about, um, links and a bit more uh, detail about maybe some things. Next thing is if you are listening to this in iTunes, please leave me a review. You know, I love when you guys leave me reviews. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't matter where you listen to this. So if you listen to this on YouTube, yes, it's actually the audio of this actually goes out to YouTube. Or if you listen to this in SoundCloud or Stitcher or Android app, totally fine. You could continue listening that way. But if you by chance happen to listen in iTunes, it'd be so amazing if you can leave a review because we don't understand podcasters don't understand the way iTunes work really it's kind of like a black hole in terms of who gets rated and ranked but we do kind of know that the more subscribes you get in iTunes and the more reviews helps somewhat and the reviews just help me understand like what you guys are loving about the podcast and what I can do better 
and what I can do more of. So if you're liking what you're hearing, go to iTunes if you're listening in iTunes and just rate, review, and subscribe. Now let's get into this amazing episode. So I have Emily Guy Birkin, who is a finance writer. She's really popular in the personal finance space and she's written a couple books. Most of them were on retirement, but her last book was called End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. And Emily and I talk about so much in this episode that I think will really, really help anyone out there. And so let me step back. I know the title of this podcast and the title of Emily's book is End Financial Stress Now. So obviously we're going to talk about the psychological and the deep-rooted meaning behind money, how we treat money, how we feel about money, and then how we manage our money. So we're going to go into those concepts, which are very important because as we discussed in the previous episodes, it's really the mental and psychological and emotional habits that we need to change if we want to improve our financial situation. And so even if you do not feel like you're in financial stress, that's okay. You can still learn a lot from this episode because what we're going to do here is we're going to break down some step-by-step instructions on how you can save money, pay off debt, and learn to stick to a budget on any income. And I wanted to also note that I know that a lot of you guys are just beginning your financial journey and that is totally okay. And for me, I would say I'm, I'm more in the advanced journey or stage. So I do have a blog article that talks about the different stages of where someone can be in their financial journey according to the journey to launch framework. And I know a lot of you guys are in the beginning stages. And what I really like about the what this podcast is and what the brand of Journey to Launch is, is that you guys are growing with me. And so I know some of you guys are more advanced journeyers. You may be, you know, you're, you know how to budget, you have your goals, you know what Roth IRAs are. And I like, that is amazing. And so maybe some of these episodes for you are pretty basic, but I don't want you to tune it out because I do think a lot of us can learn from the basics, one. And two, what will start happening with this podcast is as I grow, as I do more episodes, I will start getting into more complex things. And beginner journeyers, don't worry. I think by the time we get to those topics, those subject matters, you guys will be primed and ready to understand some of these concepts. And I can't wait to I can't wait to get into that stuff. All right. So before I keep rambling, <laughs> let's just jump into the episode with Emily Guy Birkin. So hi, Emily. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Now, tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, I am a personal finance writer. I actually I started my career as an English teacher. I was a high school English teacher for several years. Then I took a year off to have kids. That year has become seven years. And in that time, I have uh, I started blogging for personal finance sites kind of all over the web which is the career is kind of snowballed. And I am now the author of four personal finance books. So <laughs> the career in a nutshell, but uh, I have a, uh, a very deep interest in, in money, finance, the psychology of money, and like the behavior side of, of why we do the things we do with money. And uh, so that, that plus my love for writing kind of informs uh, how I write about money. And I must say, everyone, what we're going to talk about today is Emily's latest book, and financial stress now. 
and we'll get into it. But Emily, I have to tell you that I'm usually, even though I am a personal finance geek and I love personal finance, I am not always fond of reading personal finance books (laughs) because I find that they all say the same thing in the same way and it's pretty boring, right? And Mm so when I picked up your book or when you sent me your book, I honestly, because I wasn't that familiar with your writing before or your previous books, but when I started reading it, I instantly, I was really impressed because it kept my attention. (laughs) And a lot of things don't keep my attention, especially finance books. So I must say that I think what we're going to talk about now will help so many people listening because the book that you have now that we're going to talk about in financial stress is something that a lot of people are going through. And... The way you write about how to decipher that why you're going through the financial stress and then the steps to take to get out of it, I thought was very, very good. So I can't wait to get into everything. Thank you very much. So what made you decide to write a book about the psychology and habits of improving finances? Because your previous books were more geared around retirement, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my first two books are about retirement. My third was about Social Security. And there's kind of two things going on there. One is that uh, after three books under my belt, I kind of had the clout with my publisher to be able to say, I want to write what I want to write about this time. <laughs> my first three books were either uh, the the idea came from my publisher or I came up with the idea with them. This one was the first one where I was like, this is my book idea. And we decided to run with it. So I've always been interested in money and you know, I can get deep into like the wonky details of retirement. But my first love when I'm talking about personal finance and money is understanding why we make such weird decisions with money. And this is something I've been interested in for it's been more than seven years, more like 10 years when I first started reading books about sociology and behavioral economics and the kind of psychology of uh, modern life. And so I have been thinking for quite some time about the ways that we make ourselves a little bit crazy about the things that we do on a daily basis particularly when it comes to things that uh, can have a big impact on your life, like money or parenting is another part of this that I'm really interested in, partially because I'm a parent of two kids at this point. And so this is a book that's kind of been building for quite a few years for me. And I, I feel very lucky that I'm at a point in my career that I was able to write it. Right. And the basis of the book, which is about ending financial stress, I thought was important because really... The psychology of it all is what drives our actions. And then obviously our actions are what put us in the places that we are relative to our finances. Absolutely. Yeah. So we tend to get into this sort of feedback loop with money where we have an emotional reaction to a money issue, whether it's a money problem or anything money related. So we have an emotional reaction. And because of that emotional reaction, we'll make a decision. And that decision often makes things worse if it's a stressful situation, which causes us to have another emotional reaction, which means another not great decision. And so it kind of just continues and snowballs that way. And so that's why it's so important to kind of put a little bit of space in between your emotional reaction to a money situation and the decision you make about it so that you can actually take the time to find the decision that's going to relieve your stress instead of add to it. So is it possible, so speaking on the whole financial stress part, is it possible that someone doesn't know they're under financial stress? Because 
Obviously, there's the telltale signs that you could probably tell someone has stress with finances if they're living paycheck to paycheck or if they're not making enough money to really cover their basic expenses. You can expect someone will have or be under financial duress. But what about the times where someone may not know they're under financial stress? They could be making good money. They could be feeling that they are living their life fine, but they're still just almost not feeling confident with their finances. Is that also a kind of financial stress or? Absolutely. There's the the kind of thing that we just accept as a given in our society. Like it's kind of a, a given that you'll live with debt. You know, there are people who are like, you can't own a car without owing money. You know, there's no way to own a car outright. You can't be an adult without having credit card debt. And so that's that's kind of a given in our society. And so we live with, uh, you know, the low level stress of owing money to people. So that's one aspect of it. So even if you're making good money, you still have that low level stress like, oh, my goodness, what if I lose my job? How will I you know, be able to pay my car loan? How will I be able to pay the minimum on my visa bill? If I were to lose my job, I have to keep that job. And so there's that low level stress, even if you're doing, you know, making good money, you're doing better than paycheck to paycheck, you still might have that low level stress because you accept it as a given that debt is just something that you have as an adult in American society, which is not true. That's just something that we've accepted that we shouldn't. Then there's also, depending on how your your brain is is wired in, in terms of how you look at money different things might make you stressed out. So one of the stories I tell in the book was about, uh, I was the beneficiary of my father's life insurance. My father, he died uh, relatively young. He was 62, but I was in my 30s at the time. So I was not in any way counting on his, his income. And I have never felt traditional financial stress. I've always been a money nerd. I've always paid close attention to my finances. I've always had a pretty good sense of being able to keep my emotions out of my financial decisions. However, when my father left me that insurance policy, that was the most financially stressed I've ever felt in my life because I felt like in any way enjoying or being glad for this money that my father meant as a gift meant that I was a betrayal of him in some way. And so I worked to get that money out of my hands as quickly as possible and doing things that I thought that my dad, who was a financial planner, would approve of. So I put money in my kids' 529s. I gave some to charity. I also put some away for my own retirement. And as the money left my direct control, I felt this profound sense of relief that I didn't even realize that I was so stressed until I was feeling this relief. And it still took me several years later to to recognize that relief was not just like, oh, I'm glad I did something smart with the money. It was a an irrational emotional reaction to money that was causing me a great deal of stress. And so you'll have that kind of thing too, where because it's the opposite reaction that most people would have, you don't even realize that you're feeling stress. Mm-hmm. So these are the sorts of things that we get uh, tied up in knots about money and not necessarily in the ways that are typical. So just going back to that, so how would you have handled that situation differently with your father's passing away and you having that money, how would you have handled that differently if you were not under that stress? I think that I would have recognized that my dad wanted me to enjoy the money in some way. Now, I am such a money nerd that, you know, I did, I really enjoyed being able to put it in my kids' 529 accounts. (laughs) But I think that I would have been able to come to a little bit more peace, recognizing that my dad would have been like, you want a a new car? Go get a new car, you know? And he would have been okay with that. And that it was not a betrayal for me to be thinking about that. Because that's, you know, my husband who has 
you know, different financial stressors was like, you know, we could, we could buy something fun with this. And I was just, just absolutely not. No, <laughs> I will not do something like this. Whereas my dad would have been pleased for me to do something with, fun with it. So like just kind of letting me be able to let go of that sense that I have to do the exact right thing. There was a right way to spend the money or else it was a betrayal of my dad would have been really helpful to, to me when I'm already, you know, in the midst of, of grieving him. Right, right. So you mentioned something earlier, and I think it's important to highlight. There is a difference of like how we what our actual finances are and how we feel about our finances, right? So why is it so important to differentiate that and put a space between that? Well, the important thing is, you know, how we feel about our finances is colored by a lot of things that don't necessarily have anything to do with the, the dollars and cents that's actually in your checking account or, or in your retirement account or anything like that. How we feel about things is not necessarily going to take us in the most rational direction for our money. The thing that's really hard for us to wrap our heads around is money is a social construct. We as a society have collectively decided that we agree that these little green pieces of paper are worth something, which is really bizarre if you think about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it really is like, you can't get, you know, a group of people together to decide what toppings to put on pizza, but we've all decided <laughs> <laughs> that these little green pieces of paper are worth the same amount of money. So because that, because this collective agreement, our individual feelings about money color our decisions about it. You know, we tend to have these very visceral reactions to money because of our experiences, because of the way our brain chemistry is set up and because of our emotions. And so with all of that, you know, brought to bear on money, we can make some really terrible decisions or even just decisions that aren't going to maximize the use of our money if we react with our emotions rather than with our brains. And so we got to take that, take that deep breath and take that moment between like the, Ooh, I want it or, Ooh, I got to get this money out of my control. whatever it is, between the take that breath and have that time so that we can say, wait a minute, is that really the best use of the money? Is that really the best decision I can make? And part of you feeling the way you feel about money is also based on what you believe money means to you. So in the book, you talk about there are different connections people can have with money. There's shame, respect, security, freedom, success, love, and time. Like that's basically the list of what money means to certain people and people and it can mean more than one thing, right? So can you just talk about the most common ones that come up for people mostly? Well, one of the most common ones that I see is people thinking of money as security. And that's actually it's a reasonable belief, you know, because if you have ever been money insecure, getting having money feels like having the ground under your feet again when you before you you felt like you might be drowning. Now, the problem with placing security, the meaning of security on money, is that ultimately money can't give you security. You know, the thing that I I tell people is there's no no such thing as financial security. In the zombie apocalypse, Warren Buffett is going to be putting up uh, boards over his windows to (laughs) save us. You know, Mm -hmm. his money will not will not protect him when the zombies are coming. So that's my, you know, kind of facetious version of it. But there's even just in historical versions of it, if you look back to some of the horrors that have happened in, you know, recent past in the Holocaust, there were people who had great fortunes that lost it and were ended up in concentration camps because money 
is not actually security. Now that sounds terrifying. You know, like I say that and people are like, great, thanks. I thought it was yeah, I'm like, end. what? <laughs> <laughs> but in actuality, that is kind of, it's liberating rather than, than terrifying if you're able to kind of turn the corner in the way that you look at it. Because if you're saying that money is security, you're putting your money behind the wheel. You're saying my money can handle anything that comes at me. Well, that's not true because any fortune can be wiped out by something. But if you say I can handle anything that comes at me, I am my own security, that is a very liberating and freeing feeling. And that is something that can help you you know, stay light on your feet and react with flexibility to any kind of financial problem rather than saying, like, if I had more money, my money could handle it. So that's the sort of thing where if you need to really get a sense of what your beliefs are and then find the flaws in those beliefs so that you can recognize when you might fall through those cracks. And that's uh, security is one that I see a lot because people so often they want to be financially secure and it's understandable. But if they start recognizing that they are their own security, they can feel a lot less stress a lot sooner. I love that. I love I am my own security, like changing it from that. And it reminds me of a quote that I like. And it's basically it says it's better to be resourceful than to have resources. And it it reminds me of that, you know, because it's better if you can, like you said, depend on yourself, have more faith, have put the dependency and the security in yourself, regardless of the money. And then, you know, the money is just icing on the cake, but it is not everything to you. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's a great quote. I, I, I like that. <laughs> so you have something in the book called The Five Whys, and I want you to talk about it a bit because I thought it was very powerful. If someone wanted to understand the root of their emotional issues with the money problem, I thought it was a great way to decipher that to get to the root of it. So can you talk about that a bit more? Yeah, yeah. So my husband's a mechanical engineer, and the five whys is actually a tool that uh, engineering that was created by in the engineering world to help determine the root of a problem if there's a problem with an engine. Specifically, it was Toyota that, that came up with it. So basically, what it is is you start with a problem, and then you ask why five times. And then by the time you get to the fifth why, you generally get to the root of that problem. It's a really, really helpful tool. It seems very simple when you hear it that way, but you know, it did have to be, people had to invent it to come up with it. There is this way to get to the root cause of something. Now, with what you believe about money, the five whys can also be really helpful to help you understand the root of why you do what you do or why you believe what you believe about money. So what I suggest people do is start with a thought exercise. Like if I won the lottery, let's say I get a million dollars tomorrow, the very first thing I will buy, like the first thing I will buy is what? And so once you have the answer to that question, then you start asking yourself those five whys. So for instance, if you say the very first thing I would buy would be a whole new wardrobe, why? Well, then you can start thinking, okay, I would buy a whole new wardrobe because I hate dressing in hand-me-downs or cast-offs or things from a consignment shop. Why? Well, when I wear clothes that are used that aren't new, I feel invisible. Why? Well, when I was a kid, I had to wear hand-me-downs and I felt like no one wanted to talk to me and I felt like people laughed at me. And so there you get to it with just a few questions. You recognize like this money belief that you have is that money will help keep you from feeling socially isolated through clothing in this particular case. And then once you kind of get to that, same as with the, the engineering, it seems very simple, but it's actually, you really do have to kind of dig through those layers and then recognize, you know what, money is not going to make me feel socially accepted. A new wardrobe 
will not affect that at all. This is me placing information on my current life from my childhood when I saw things as a child and I never really updated the way I viewed the world. Right. Yeah, that's a really good exercise because like you said, sometimes we only really skim the surface level a lot when it comes to trying to figure out our problems. And then we usually just go to whatever feels comfortable, like the answer that the first thing that comes to mind. But if you're able to dig deeper and deeper and find the root of the cause or the issue that you have, then it will help guide you to make better decisions. So I think that's a really good exercise for someone. You have something else you talk about in the book where, so there are a lot of things that we do as humans around money. There's a lot of habits that we have. And sometimes in the effort to save money, we spend more money. And I feel like I'm probably one of these people. So you have something where you talk about the idea of something being free actually cost you more money. And we fall into that trap a lot. And the advertisers and big companies know this. And so it's how they get people kind of stuck into a lot of contracts or buying things that we don't need because they just flash free in front of us and we run to it. And then we are next thing you know, we are in a two year contract <laughs> spending tons of money on something we don't want. So can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's something about the word free that just kind of turns off our, our ability to check to see if something's a good deal. We see free and it's like, you know, we're jumping over ourselves to get something. I'm kind of clutter reverse and I, I don't like the idea of more stuff in my house. But man, if there's like a sign that says free with stuff out on the, on the, on the, the sidewalk, I will be passing by like, oh, is there anything I want? No, I don't want anything new in my house. <laughs> and the thing is, what happens with free is that because there is no financial cost, we forget to think about if there are any other costs to it. In terms of like the clutter issue, like because there's no financial cost, I think I forget to consider the space cost of like, where would I put that free thing? One of the best examples that I, I remember reading about this is from the book Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. He talked about he was at a promotion at a New York City bar that was offering patrons free tattoos for attending an event. Now, tattoos are not cheap. So free tattoos kind of a big thing. The thing is, there were 76 people in line for the free tattoo, and 52 of them would not be getting a tattoo if it weren't free. 52 of them. <laughs> Wow. And that's startling. I mean, this is permanent body modification. This is not a mug that you can later decide to give to a goodwill. You know, this is not a, a free trial of HBO that you can then later spend, you know, 30 minutes on the phone with the uh, with their uh, retention department arguing with them to cancel. This is permanent. And what's further kind of crazy was that four of the people in line for tattoos didn't know what design they wanted. And another five didn't know where they wanted it on their body. So, and this is clearly the word free was affecting their behavior. Now, the other thing that was interesting about this nightclub event was there was another tattoo artist there who just happened to be there for the event. And she noticed the proceedings with the free tattoos. And she said that they were not necessarily taking the best hygiene precautions with the tattoos, which meant that these people who were getting free tattoos were making themselves vulnerable to hepatitis or other bloodborne diseases because the hygiene was not at its best. So this free tattoo could end up costing them lots of money because of their health. And not to mention, there's the other issue of like, depending on where you get your tattoo, it can affect employment and things like that. People are not thinking that far ahead about it because the word free is like, it's like a giant neon sign in our brains and we just can't see behind it. 
Right. And you have a quote that you said in the book that do not accept anything for free that you wouldn't pay for, which I thought was really good. (laughs) Absolutely. I learned that from a, a friend of mine. She's a homeschooler and like a master crafter. So she has a lot of art supplies and things like that in her home. And she realized that she would sometimes accept art supplies, coloring books and things like that for her kids that she didn't actually want just because they were free. And so she learned to just, no, unless I would pay money for it, I don't want it for free either. Mm, Right, right. Okay, so let's talk about something else you mentioned in the book, and that is mental accounting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the denomination effect and the money illusion. Can you discuss what those are and then explain how we can deal with them? Sure. Mental accounting is not a bad thing. We do mental accounting so we can, it's basically being able to do math in our heads relatively quickly. And we kind of carry these ideas in our heads, you know, about, okay, I've got about this much in my checking account. I got about this much in my wallets and, and you're able to kind of make decisions quickly. And if we didn't have mental accounting, we would be forced to carry Excel software everywhere we went just to decide if we wanted to buy a candy bar. So it's not a bad thing that we have mental accounting. The problem is that our mental accounting can lead to predictable errors in the way that we think. And one of the ones that's very common is the denomination effect, which you're less likely to spend a big bill than you think rather compared to a small one. And so if you've ever held on to a hundred or a $50 bill for weeks and weeks at a time, because you don't want to spend it, you don't want to break it. you know exactly what I mean. Or if you've ever gone through a drive-through to get breakfast or something like that, and you thought you had a couple of ones in your wallet, you only have a 20 and it hurts to break that 20 for your egg McMuffin. That's the denomination effect. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. The problem is that once you have the same amount of money in smaller bills, you are happy to spend it. It flows through your hands like water. So if you have $50 in ones, you don't have any problem spending that. Whereas if you have a single $50 bill, you'll hold on to it. It feels different depending on what you have. And that's partially because a pain perception that you feel like they've done neural studies in your brain that when you pay for something with a large bill, you are actually handing over a visible symbol of a large amount of money and it actually feels painful. Like you're, you really do feel pain. So that's one side of it. Then the other side of it, the other end of accounting error is something called the money illusion. And what that means is that you overspend when you're so focused on a large amount of money. You've got a high dollar amount in your possession. So you spend past that dollar amount because you are so focused on what's a lot of money that it doesn't occur to you that you have spent more than that. So the best example I have ever seen of this is a a dear friend of mine was in dental school, very, very stressful. And so she was not paying attention to her money. She's normally, you know, very conscientious, but you know, for about a month, she wasn't paying attention to her money. And so she was, you know, spending 45 bucks here for a meal out and 10 bucks there for coffee for herself and a friend and making purchases and this, that, and the other. And so when she finally looked at her account, she freaked out. She's like, oh my God, someone stole $2,000 from me. And she actually called the bank and was on the phone with them when she realized she was the thief. (laughs) (laughs) So she had made $2,000 worth of purchases, but it didn't occur to her that it added up to that much because she assumed that the amount of money, that $2,000 worth of purchases would look bigger than, you know, five or 10 bucks here, 45 bucks there, you know, 30 bucks here, because 
$2,000 is part of the money illusion. It sounds like a lot of money, but it adds up quickly in little amounts. So these are things that can really mess up your budgeting and your ability to make good decisions with your money because of these these, uh, mental accounting errors. Right. So with the denomination effect, that totally explains why I never want to break big bills, but then also explains that once I break it, I'm more than susceptible to then spend the rest of it because I'm just like, oh, Oh, you know, I broke it already. I might as well finish spending it. (laughs) So how can I and we're getting to, you know, we're going to get further in the interview. We're going to talk about what someone can actually do, the concrete actionable steps someone can do to really get a hold of their finances and how they can improve how they feel about their finances, but what can someone do with like knowing the denomination effect, knowing the money illusion, like what can I do now to use those things to propel me in the right direction with my finances? So with the the denomination effect and the money illusion, I kind of see them as two ends of a spectrum. And there are some people who have trouble being financially responsible at both ends of the spectrum. I mean, they throw pennies away. And I say that literally, I've known people who actually like pennies are useless and throw them away. Oh, it drove me nuts. But they also overspend large amounts of money and they are on both ends of that spectrum. But most people tend to be fall in one end or the other where they are able to make responsible decisions with large sums of money, but little bits money, you know, just flow through their hands. And then there are other people who are able to be savvy with small amounts of money, but they fall victim to the money illusion. And, you know, they get a $3,000 bonus and run through it really quickly. So knowing which end of the spectrum you tend to lie on can help a lot. So for instance, if you know that you hate spending big bills, but small bills just fall through your fingers, the thing to do is you know, if you need to carry cash, carry a 20 or a $50 bill that you need, you know, so you have cash in case of emergency. But as soon as you make a purchase on it, deposit it in the bank and get another large bill. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that sounds crazy. But what that does is that prevents you from making all those little purchases once you've broken the big bill. So if you are someone who has trouble with the money illusion, you know, you're like a $3,000 bonus is just going to flow through your fingers. Make sure that you have target your savings. So if you get a $3,000 bonus, make sure you're like, okay, $1,000 of that is going to go into my new car fund. $1,000 is going to go into my vacation fund. And $1,000 is going to go into my retirement account. Boom. It's targeted. And then decision is made. And you can't then say like, oh, but these shoes are so cute. You know, oh, it's only, it's only $80. I'll spend that. And then find yourself spending past it. If you give every dollar a home and you know what you're going to do with that money before it even hits your account, then you are able to make much better decisions with it than if you say like, oh, it'll sit there while I figure out what I want to do with it. And then it'll be gone. Right. And with both of those cases, what you said took preparation. Like you have to be prepared you not only do you have to be aware of your weaknesses, so you have to admit you know, what, what you're not good at so you, and be self-aware of that, but then you have to prepare and be ready to you know, fight these little battles that we have with our money. Well, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like some of the things they talk about with you know, eating healthy and things like that. I know personally I cannot have Oreos in my house. <laughs> <laughs> So it's actually at this point in my life, you know, after like, I don't know, I think it's about 18 years ago is when I realized, you know, I'm a grown up now. I can buy Oreos whenever I want, but that's not a good idea. It doesn't even hurt anymore. Like I can walk past that aisle in the grocery store. <laughs> it's fine. But it, it's very much like that in that you have to recognize what your weaknesses are and prepare for them and make those hard and fast rules, which might hurt when you're first making them, but they 
just become your normal after a while. And then after a while, it's like, yeah, I can't have Oreos in the house. It's no big deal. (laughs) Right. Oh, no, I feel you. I'm the same way. I know that if I buy certain things, I'm just gonna eat it without any (laughs) ration. Like I'm just gonna go all in. So I just don't buy it. So okay, good points. Good points. All right. So let's talk about the scarcity mindset. Because I thought that was another great topic that you talked about and how it leads to tunneling and then why when you're in the tunneling mind frame, why it's hard then to resist spending money. So can you talk about that, the scarcity mindset? Yeah. So there's a, a great book that I read called uh, Scarcity by Sendhil Malanathan and Eldar Shafir. The book talks about like they, they did some deep research into what happens to our brains when we are missing something. So if you are missing money, if this, that is your scarcity, you are very focused on what you're missing. Now, a lot of people are might be a little bit more familiar with time scarcity. I had a teacher in high school who, who told us she never wrote a paper for anything other than like four hours before it was due. And that's a similar thing. What happens is you become so focused on what you're missing, like time or money, that you are able to actually focus and tunnel in on what it is you need to do. So that's why people find that they work better under a strict deadline because they have no choice and they can focus just on what they need to get done. And that can be a good thing. However, what happens is, If you become so tunneled, if you're so focused on the one thing that you lack, then you miss anything outside the tunnel. So what might happen with money is if you're so focused on like, oh my God, I have to pay rent next week. Okay, I've got to figure out where I'm going to get my rent money. Okay, I can do a little extra work here and maybe I can call in that money that my sister owes me and I can do this. And you're thinking about all the things you need to do to get your rent paid. That's great. What you might be forgetting is your utility bill is due the next week. And then that's where then you're tunneled on that utility bill. And then you forget that your car loan bill is due the week after that. And so what happens is you just kind of stumble from money crisis to money crisis without ever being able to prepare for the month after that, because you're going to have rent due again and utilities due again and your car bill due again the following month. And then if there's any kind of emergency, it's just going to blow everything up. So that's the problem with tunneling and scarcity is it can help you focus on the problem at hand in a way that helps you solve problems, but it does not allow you to get the bigger picture. You're doing the seeing the trees, not the forest situation. And that can be really, really detrimental to your mental health, your stress levels and your finances. Right. So then how can someone get out of the scarcity mindset? Getting out of the scarcity mindset is not easy. Basically, if you are missing something, you are going to be focused on it. So my greatest scarcity moment was uh, sleep. My my eldest child did not sleep for the first 18 months of his life, and I'm only exaggerating slightly. Um, And so there were things that I could have done to make sure that we got more rest that I just couldn't do because I was so focused on the rest I wasn't getting. So what needs to happen is when, even when you're, you know, just so focused on this, you need to find a way to build slack into whatever it is that you are missing. So building slack into your budget can make a huge difference. So that's why every personal finance guru out there says, start with an emergency fund when you start getting your finances in order. The problem is if you're already in the scarcity mindset, building slack into your budget is really hard. <laughs> um, and so that's why I say start small automatically transfer $10 a week to savings. That might sound like not much, but that's part of the the beauty of it. It's not going to be enough to be worth transferring back again if you get into a small problem. 
and then increase that automatic transfer in the future so that you can start actually building enough money that you do have a bit of an emergency fund. Another thing is uh, find ways to break into that tunnel focus. So setting reminders to yourself so that you've got post-it notes on your calendar, you know, like you do have utilities due next week or something like that. Sending yourself a future email. There's a site called futureme.org that allows you to send an email to yourself in the future so that you can keep things in mind and remember, oh my goodness, I have to pay my car insurance because it's only every six months and you forget until the bill comes due. So, you know, you can send yourself an email for two months ahead of time. So like you've got some time, how are you going to find that money? So that actually can really do a lot to make sure that you still see the forest rather than focusing on the trees. Right. Those are good points. So talking about seeing the big picture, seeing the whole forest and not just the trees, you mentioned in the book something called translating your dollars into time. And I thought if more people understood this concept, we would make so much better decisions with how we spent our money. So can you just explain what that means and then give an example so that listeners can then apply it to their own life? Yeah, well, we have this tendency to, you know, we, we see dollar amounts. And for one thing, our reaction to dollar amounts, it can be hilarious. For instance, just two days ago, my husband's car, the clutch broke and we had to get it fixed. And so it was at the mechanic that we like and trust and the, the mechanic bill was $1,400, which is no small chunk of change. But because of the way we, we set up our finances, you know, it, it's not a big deal. So the same day that I, you know, without tossing a hair, wrote that check, I also was looking for something for uh, some clothes for my kids online, and I turned up my nose at the idea of something being $15. That makes no sense if you really think about it, you know, like, and what's going on there is that we have this sense of like, well, it's okay for a new clutch and, you know, reworking the transmission and everything else that needed to be done to my husband's car that costs $1,400. A Jake in the Neverland Pirate shirt should not cost 15. I won't spend more than $8 on it. And that's what's known as anchoring. We have this sense of what something should cost. The problem with anchoring is that it's completely arbitrary. You know, why do I think that a Jake in the Neverland Pirate shirt should only cost $8? Why do I think it's perfectly reasonable for a car repair to cost $1,400? That would have been unreasonable, you know, 50 years ago. You know, that sort of thing. So... What's helpful is to help you remember that these numbers are kind of arbitrary and put them in a unit of measurement that is more meaningful is to translate the dollars into hours. So if you kind of figure out how much you earn per hour, let's say it's $20 per hour, then that helps you look at something like something that'll cost $100. Like, hey, your friend wants you to go to a show and have dinner afterwards. It's going to be about $100 for the night. Is that worth five hours of your working time? wow, no, I don't really want to see the show that badly. (laughs) Whereas if you're thinking about it as $100, that's $100, it's not that much. But if you realize just how much of your life you have to spend at work to be able to pay for that, then you're much more able to decide, like, is this worth my time? Because my time is money. Right, and it's so excellent because so many people, including myself, (laughs) you know, maybe are not completely satisfied with what they currently do for a living. So... If you are now, you know, you're saying in one hand, you're complaining about your job or you're not, you don't like it. And then on the other hand, you go because you don't like your job or you're complaining about it. You turn around and say, well, I deserve then to treat myself. And then you go buy yourself maybe, you know, an expensive bag or some shoes or just go out to eat. 
not realizing that you, this job that you hate or, you know, how you're making your living all translate into what you're spending. So if you go out and buy this $200 purse or you go out and spend $200 in a night, do you realize that that equals maybe eight hours? That really requires you to work eight hours to purchase that bag or to go out for that one night. And is it worth that to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when my my husband and I first were in Milwaukee, Wisconsin now, but we lived in Indiana for a few years. We first moved there. We didn't know anybody. And we went to play bingo at the VFW one night because we thought it would be fun. And we bought one bingo board for us to share because we're both pretty frugal, i.e. cheap. The woman next to us had like six or seven arrayed in front of her. She was buying food and cocktails and things like that. And so I, off the top of my head, I think she was probably spending about $300 just in one night. And she was saying how much she loved bingo. And she went three times a week and it was her downtime from her two jobs. And I was just sitting there going like, do you know, you could probably quit one of those jobs if you also quit bingo. (laughs) Yeah. Like you'd probably be a lot less stressed. (laughs) I, you know, obviously I didn't know her. She was very friendly and nice and all of that. I didn't want to insert myself into her business, but at the same time I was very much looking at like how many hours of work are you spending to do this, to have your downtime from the work that you need to then spend to have more downtime from. And this is not going to end well for you. Right, right. And then for people listening, this concept really comes from the Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez. And that's a really good book. So I would recommend that. And I'll put it in the show notes because it explains that concept even more, breaks it down. Yeah, Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez's book was one of the, the big influences for me writing and financial stress now. I remember reading them about four or five years ago, and it was like light bulb upon light bulb going off oh, yeah. of my head. Yeah, they're really good books. Okay, so what about money scripts? What are the four money scripts? Because you talk about it in the book, and I think it's another great point that we should talk about here. That's a term that was coined by a man named Dr. Bradley Klontz. And what they are, there are unconscious beliefs about money that are formed in childhood. And generally, we don't really look at them or challenge them. So there's four categories of money scripts. There's money avoidance, money worship, money status, and money vigilance. So basically, those four categories kind of help you understand your viewpoints, like the the lens through which you look at money. So depending what kind of money script you have, you might be vulnerable to different type of disordered financial behavior. Money avoidance, for instance, tend to be the scripts where you think that you don't deserve money or that you think that only rich people care about money. You know, good people don't care about money like you. So you don't pay attention to it. So you avoid looking at your financial statements and you kind of congratulate yourself on being above money. Or if you do come into money, you feel terrible about it, which uh, that's actually I have a little bit of avoidance scripts myself, which is where my concern about getting the money for my father's uh, life insurance came from. Money worship and money status are kind of two sides of the same coin. Money worship is generally about feeling like more money is always better. And you'll feel better if you have more money. There's going to be a better sense of self if you have more money. Money status is a little bit more along the lines of feeling like the amount of money you have and the way that you spend it represents who you are as a person in kind of a very deep and profound way. And you want to show off you know, you have a nice house, you have a nice car and things like that. And then money vigilance is the sense that you need to pay attention to every single penny, that you need to be really prepared and very hard at work at paying attention to your money. Now, one of the things that I I really want to make clear to your listeners, I often hear people 
respond like, oh, money vigilance is the right script to have. But none of these are right or wrong. These are just the way you look at the world. And even money vigilance doesn't necessarily mean that doesn't protect you from stupid money decisions or money decisions that can cost you money. So that's something that people often kind of like, well, money vigilance is the one where you pay attention to your money, so it must be good. Not necessarily. I know someone who chose a college based on the fact that it was rated as a best value by U.S. News and World Report. Once he got to that school, he discovered that what made the school a good good value was that it was kind of a commuter school and the, most of the students you know, just emptied out and went, went home on evenings and weekends. So he had trouble making friends. He did not feel like he fit in and he ultimately ended up trying transferring to a different school, wasting money and time because of his money vigilance script. So those are the sorts of things that it can cause all kinds of disordered financial behavior that causes you stress and costs you money. Right. And it's all tied in together because like even the money vigilance kind of ties into then maybe you are more susceptible to getting things for free because you think that it's saving you money, but in turn, it's really costing you more money. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So can we talk a bit about now you've given some great tips, some great insights on how we think and feel about money and what we should recognize in our own habits. What can someone do? What are the takeaways that if today someone's listening to this, they can say to themselves, like, what can I do now now to get myself further along in my finances and then end whatever anxiety I feel around money? Mm -hmm. One of the important things that I think that a lot of people need to do is find a little breathing room. A lot of times, even if you just get a little bit of distance between your your financial stress and the decisions you make, that can help you make better decisions. And so sometimes all that you need for that is a little bit of breathing room, which could be, you know, another hundred or $200 a month. Now you get, you know, one of my pet peeves about the personal finance sphere is that you get, I mean, these kinds of articles are a dime a dozen that tell you, you know, like, oh, you can save money if you do this and you can save money if you do that. And a lot of times the suggestions are like stress inducing. They're like, you know, have a side hustle and never sleep. Well, no, people need the rest or they'll be like, oh, you know, save money on your toilet paper. Well, you know, 10 cents of roll savings is not really going to help much. Or it'll be like, hey, move to Iowa. It's cheap there. (laughs) No, that's not really feasible for most people. So I wanted in my book to offer real solutions that can actually offer breathing room that are not going to cause you more stress. So the number one way that I suggest people do that is adjust their withholding on their W-4, which I tell people this and they immediately go, Ooh, really? Can I do that? And absolutely you can. When you put uh, how many allowances you want on your W-4, that is not a contract with government or anything like that. That is just simply to let the government know how much to take in withholding from your paycheck. You have to tell the truth come tax time when you file your taxes, but on your withholding, you actually can put pretty much any number you want. Now, I don't recommend that, but it's not the, you know, like horrifying legal situation a lot of people see it as. So, what happens is the more withholding allowances you claim, the less taxes withheld from your paychecks. So if you aim for the exact right number of withholding allowances, then you'll uh, have more money in your paycheck and then you will get no refund at the end of the year. And that's actually what I think most people should be aiming for. And that's something, you know, you, you fill, fill out one piece of paperwork with your HR department and the next pay period, you'll have more money in your checks and that'll give you a little bit of breathing room. The one caveat to this is make sure that you're able to be responsible with that little bit of breathing room. 
So the other things that people can do, negotiating their bills. I'm not a great negotiator, so that can be a little stress-inducing for me. But, you know, if you choose one bill a week to call and just see what you can get and, you know, you can negotiate with Internet, cell phone, auto insurance, medical bills, potentially even your landlord. Canceling unused subscriptions is another great way to find a little bit of extra money in your in your monthly nuts. And there's even if you don't want to actually go through and find those unused subscriptions yourself, there are apps that will do the work for you for free. There's one called Trim, asktrim.com, and another one called Truebill, truebill.com. So, you know, these are all things that you can actually do that will actually increase the amount of money you see in your budget each month and give you just that little bit of breathing room you need to be able to make better decisions without Without, you know, having to go out and do a side hustle or move to Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, these are all excellent, excellent tips. And you have so much more of them in the book. And I recommend anyone who is really looking to get a hold and get some control over their finances. And if you have a deep emotional issue, even if you don't feel like you do, because I noticed that a lot of people don't even acknowledge or understand the kind of stress that they're under due to their finances like this is an excellent book to pick up so emily thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and all these excellent tips well thank you so much for having me where can everyone find you if they want to connect more where can they find the book well, you can find the book anywhere books are sold, but specifically on Amazon. It's End Financial Stress Now, Immediate Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. And then you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Emily Guy Birkin. That's E-M-I-L-Y-G-U-Y-B-I-R-K-E-N. And then I have a website, emilyguybirkin.com. And everyone, I'll have all of the links that Emily uh, mentioned in the show notes. So you can definitely go to that and check everything out. So once again, thank you so much, Emily, for sharing all this great knowledge. Thank you. I really hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Emily. Thanks again, Emily, so much for coming on the podcast. And I really, really recommend you pick up her book if you are interested in learning about the psychology and the behavior around money and then getting the actual steps to fix that. And if you want the episode show notes for this, so anything we mentioned in this podcast, you can find it at www.journeytolaunch.com slash episode nine. Now on to reading one of the podcast reviews on iTunes. This one is from WM Always. It says, love what Jamila is bringing to the table with this podcast. And it's sound yet easy to follow advice. Highly recommend. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I just want to say that the purpose of this podcast, I know I said this a couple times, is that I really want this information to be easily digestible for you because I do feel like there is a gap between this financial independence world. So the online FI bloggers who are really, really on the path to being financially free and they are saving and investing, like they have so much information out there between each other. And it's great. I learned so much from following them. So that's great. But I want to be able to connect the dots to the people who I know if this information got to them they would want to follow along and figure out a way to reach financial freedom also. So I really try to make the podcast easy to understand, but I still want to, you know, I'm going to start diving into some, some more complex topics and it's going to be a learning curve for both of us. So for me and you, the listener. So thank you again for the reviews and comments. I really do appreciate the feedback. 
Now, again, if you want to leave me a review, you can do so if you're listening on iTunes by going to iTunes and clicking on the subscribe button and then rate and review. I really would appreciate it. Also, if you want to leave me that voicemail so you can ask me a personal finance question or give me some feedback, you can do so by going to journey to launch dot com slash voicemail. Oh, oh, oh. And don't forget, you can nominate Journey to Launch as the best new personal finance podcast at the Plutus Awards. Go to journey to launch dot com slash nominate to nominate me. You have up until September 8th. So Friday, September 8th, you have to nominate me. All right, guys, thanks for joining me once again, and I'll chat with you next week. 